Thank you very much. Um, fortunately, I'm one of a number of speakers here because I'm going to miss out on lots of things about narrative research and focus in on particular interests that I've had um, to try and just give you some insights into work I'm currently doing <clears throat> and the sorts of ways in which um, very briefly that we've worked on theorising or are working on theorising uh, that, that, that research and also to talk very briefly about the ways in which we are seeking to influence policy and um, policy in particular in the slides that I'll show is to try and emphasize uh, to, to influence policy on a big level, a big scale, but that's partly because they're large scale projects in terms of having large national funding. Um, but I must say that I understand over the period both of my life and over the period of narrative research overall that narrative research and research generally uh, has a serious role to play in influencing what goes on in practice and in small policies and I'll, I'll mention that towards the end. Um, I should say that there's a caveat, I will draw on two projects and I'm not going to go into any detail of them in terms of the funding or what we did and how we did it. Um, you can find out more about the Paired Peers project which I'll talk about a bit, which is a project which is about uh, participation in higher education and progression into employment in England. There's a book come out about that that you can see uh, more detail there. And the other project that I'm going to talk a bit about is something called the Mirato project which is a new project uh, looking at participation in higher education in South Africa amongst rural and township youth. And at the end of the slides, there's the link to the website where you can find out more about that. So I'm not going to go into lots of detail, uh, but rather give you some insights, some narrative insights into those projects. Uh, one of the things that I think is really important uh, for narrative research and for qualitative research is that um, a real difficulty and a challenge we face, particularly in educational research, which is very often applied, and certainly in the work I've done is applied and linked to practice and linked to empirical experience, is that we can very easily be sucked into talking about the problems that policy sets and looking at those problems with the lens that policy has set for us. And there may be nothing wrong with that, but it may not be the only thing that we want to do. And quite a lot of the time we might be wanting to think about why those problems have been set and why they've been set in those particular ways by policy and actually trying to shift the frame. And certainly in the work that I've done, quite often it may have started with an issue that is a policy problem, but as you've heard this morning, what narrative research often does is to shift the frame and shift the way of thinking about uh, that issue. So let me just give you uh, an example from recent, a, a very good presentation I heard recently on quantitative research into participation in higher education, uh, which was a very detailed quantitative analysis by Anna Vignoles, which came to the conclusion, and it was a justified conclusion from her data, that we should question the money that we're spending in England on uh, lower tariff universities and on uh, courses that are arts and humanities that don't seem to lead to high quality jobs the policy question was set was which are the best job which are the best things to do if you want to get a graduate job that pays well so it was a very obvious answer and it was very visible in the data that would be the, that would be the answer and another piece of work that she and others have done says that where the problems lie is much earlier on you look at what's going on in schools um, and that's where you need to change things and they're very good answers that you can get from very specific quantitative data and of course one of the challenges there is that you could end up with what we've called in the Paired Peers Project the degree generation, an increasing number of people with degrees, 
they also become a lost generation because you stop worrying about what's going on for them in universities because uh, you say we're going to focus all our attention on what's going on in schools because the quantitative data has told you that's where that's where the issue is so you need more than just one form of research is what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with that research, uh, but it has also got gaps in it. And some of those gaps won't be filled simply by doing more of the same in a different way. And so one of the things you've heard this morning is different ways of looking at things. And that's some of what I'm going to talk about uh, in what I say here. So I'm going to talk um, briefly about what can we learn from narratives of student life by giving you some experiences, some, uh, some example, uh, brief examples, insights into uh, some narratives from the Murato project. Uh, which is a project which, which focuses on entering and progressing through higher education from rural and township backgrounds in South Africa. Um, some brief insights into uh, one narrative from the Paired Peers Project, and the Paired Peers Project has looked at working class and middle class students' experiences at the two universities of Bristol, and the experience of the participants that we followed right from when they started at those universities in 2010 through to their experiences in employment and we followed them through till 2017 the project has just finished. I'm going to talk briefly about using narrative as a methodology and then finally what work can narrative research do. So the Murato project. Our research questions um, include how did disadvantaged youth from rural and township schools in South Africa access, participate and succeed in higher education and then move into work? And then what contextual dimensions of uh, conditions enable or inhibit access, participation and success? And you can see they're leading us towards trying to draw some conclusions towards uh, policy implications. If you're in, coming from a rural area in South Africa, that might look like a place you might want to go on holiday, but actually it's a rural a rural village in South Africa, which looks nice because the sun's shining, although you can see a rather grey cloud. And one of the advantages of this particular village, you can see the barrier here, which I've kept in deliberately, is that it's near the road. Because most rural villages uh, that the students we have talked to are coming from don't have a tarmac road. And so that makes getting both to school and to university an unbelievably difficult endeavour in terms of walking an awfully long way before you get to a tarmac road, which is the first place where you can pick up any transport. And the transport you can pick up is usually a minibus taxi, and that only goes when it's full. So it's a very interesting idea about getting access both to schooling and to university. You can't see this in incredibly well, but uh, this village up here on this hill has got a road that is in process of being built so they might eventually have a road but I should say there wasn't any evidence of anyone doing any work on it and I would have thought that if you were a young person at this point in time and you came from this rural village it would be your next generation that had any chance of that road being tarmacked and you actually getting both to school and then further afield. And this is the sorts of things that young people in South Africa will undertake in order to get to school. They don't necessarily go to their local school, the ones that we spoke to, because the local school has teachers who don't necessarily spend time teaching them or don't necessarily get to school, um, has no interest in whether the, the students succeed or not. And so a lot of students spend their time going to what they're told is a better school, which can involve things like 
trying to get across this pipeline, across a, a river that was in flood at this point in time, so they can get to a school that can be up to two hours walk away in the morning and two hours walk back at night, where they think they'll get a better education, and, and often do, because the final year of schooling focuses very much on getting them the certificate they need to get into university. So access to university is a very different thing for the students in our project, and they seem to be fairly typical of those that succeed from rural backgrounds in getting to university. They have to be unbelievably focused in order to even get that far. And when they get there, and I'm sorry that the quality of these pictures isn't great, but that's uh, the sort of accommodation that they, uh, they will end up in. And we visited, we visited a number of different universities. There are, there are universities that are mainly black students from the traditions of uh, apartheid, and this is one of those universities. And then there are middling universities, and then there are elite universities. All of them now are potentially mixed, but the black universities don't, certainly don't have any white students in them. Um, it was a shock. I have to say I'm still shocked. I cannot believe what this university was like and that these students were getting a higher education which they valued in it because the conditions were, were for, for a white middle class person with enough wealth, seeing a country that's a middle income country, seeing the sorts of conditions they were in. So you can see that that's the sort of leftover bits of curtains um, that are in this. This is a student hall of residence that's run by the university. And then that this space here isn't a safe space. There's a, there's a bridge walkway to get there from the, from the university buildings. And the students said they, they had to be really careful because things would be stolen from them between the university teaching buildings and this building where they were sleeping. So once they get there, there's also an awful lot of challenges going on. And this is one of the lecture rooms there. And the reason for taking this picture is that these aren't at an angle because of the way I've taken them. All the lecture uh, benches that they were sitting at were all at different angles because they were so old and so destroyed. And some had chairs behind them. And some of the chairs were at all sorts of different angles. And you can see down the bottom something that looks like a sink. That's actually where somehow or other the projector has been taken. And there is no longer a projector in the lecture theatre. And on the basis that the students said that they couldn't afford textbooks, um, they're therefore working, as you can see behind you, with chalkboards um, in order to learn. And finally, this is, what the, um, this is what the teaching corridors look like. And as you can see, um, everything was locked. It looked more like a prison, like a panopticon prison. Every corridor was, had, had locks on it and had, and had turnstiles if, for you to get in and out for safety reasons. And this is an educational researcher's room. As you can see, a lock on the door there, a lock on the door there, and these are is a cage to prevent people from getting into the room. Not least, sadly, because if students know there's uh, exams kept in a room, they'll then break into the room to steal the exams so they can, some of them will, so they can see what the exams are like, all sorts of things going on. So going, to higher, going into higher education in South Africa is an interesting and challenging experience. And so it's very humbling to hear about what it was like uh, for the students in, in the project. That just gives you a visual image. The narratives we heard were, were very interesting, and, and I, I'm not going to go into detail of those now, but I will just give you one example of the sorts of differences uh, between coming from a rural background and doing taken-for-granted higher education, because there will have been people studying with these people from rural backgrounds who will have had an ordinary taken-for-granted understanding of higher education. So regularly they would say, we don't know what the teaching's like, and one of them said, um, 
I was told there was this thing called lectures. So I googled it and found out what a lecture was and I thought, my goodness, what's going on here? So I asked another student and they said, well, when you get there, there's going to be a lecturer and you have to have read everything in advance because otherwise you won't understand it. And he said, so I realised it's not just a difficult place at university, it's a rough place. <laughs> and I have to say, I thought, he's right, it's like the Wild West. You're there and you've somehow got to survive. It was, it's, it's really, it's, it raises some real challenges. And then just finally, and I shan't go into the details, but the unbelievably complicated costs of university in South Africa, um, where there are ways of getting some sort of funding, but it's very insecure and you have to pay to register. But should you not have your funding, and should you be in accommodation and your funding doesn't come through to pay for it, you will be locked out of your room. A padlock will be put across your room so that you can't actually get into your room, to your belongings, and uh, you have nowhere to sleep. Um, it's, uh, it, it's a very different world. Now, the reason for just starting with that narrative, and we're obviously doing much more detailed analysis of, of what we're finding, is to say that if I gave you the quantification of that and said how many are in higher education and how many of them have got the, the grant and how many of them don't and what might happen, it looks very different to what you've seen there and also the narratives that we're hearing from the students about how that shapes their lives and the unbelievable strong aspirations they have and attempts to work really hard, which would also be missing. So narratives as far as we're concerned, are going to play a really important part in trying to speak back to what needs to happen and what things could happen, but also speaking with and to the people that we're working with. We're working with a youth-led organisation in terms of them helping each other to enable things to happen and change. I'm going to turn now completely to the other side, to, uh, to a project here, um, to our Paired Peers project. And here we've been looking at... Um, students in England and we've been looking at students at the two universities of Bristol in particular we've been interested in how social class um, may affect students experience and then their progression into university and to look at what factors help them with succeeding and to also in particular look at whether different forms of capital such as economic social and cultural but also capital such as virtual capital and embodied capital, capital may um, enable them or challenge them with succeeding. And we've had a range of narratives that we have uh, developed and looked at in terms of understanding that. And I'm just going to give you one example um, of how important our narrative understandings are. And it, this is only brief and it only gives you a bit of a beginning of Samantha's experience. But one of the important things that we're finding from that study, it's been seven years that we've managed to follow these participants, is that understanding what's happened to them both in terms of what they say about what happened to them before that seven years, but all the way through that seven years, helps to understand what has been going on in their lives, as opposed to thinking, but they could have got that job, or they could have got that degree. You can follow through the sorts of nuanced experiences and ways that they narrate and tell what's happened to them to get an understanding of how other things may have shaped and influenced uh, what's actually gone on for them. So. Samantha is a working class student studying at the University of Bristol, or was studying at the University of Bristol. Her father was self-employed, her mother um, had worked in admin, um, and her sister studied at Lancaster University. So to all intents and purposes, she was very upwardly mobile from, uh, from, from a 
from an upper working class background and she went to the local comprehensive and her family is very close I'm not going to read that out here but what she explains is that she comes from um, a mining background from a mining town and her whole family was in mining and they're still very close they're still local to the area so although the family has moved on and, and mining has disappeared both from her family but also from the community that's her roots are there she knows that's where she comes from and that's how she understands who she is and who she's part of and, and, uh, and what, 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 she's, what her life is about. But she also points out it's still very traditional and it's not moved on yet and it's a very family-orientated sort of community. Um, got on well at school, fitted in really well. Um, did, everyone did well at A-levels and so did she. Um, and she wanted to move out of the bubble. She wanted to meet new people and she wanted to move somewhere different. She wanted to do the things that a lot of aspiring working class people do in England, uh, which is move away. Uh, there's a whole set of people who want to hang on to their links, which is exactly what she did. But there's also a notion of moving away. And her notion was moving away would lead her to new opportunities. So why Bristol? Um, well, it's got a good reputation. And if you're competing, when you've got your degree, you're competing with someone else, um, and then it will give you an advantage. Again and again in the narratives we had from the Paired Peers Project, students knew you didn't need to say one university is, is in a particular status position or another one is. They had worked that out for themselves. So um, whether we might agree with that or not, the students were aware that there were rankings and they affected their understandings of who they were and where they were. But she also found that she didn't actually fit in. So she'd done well. She was from this family that was really keen for her to go to university. Her sister was at university. But then she gets to Bristol and discovers, of course, that there's these public school and, and private school people who think that she's not one of them and that she doesn't fit in. Um, and uh, she says, uh, they say there isn't a class barrier, but there is. And I notice it a lot. Um, and she's in a group and, and finds people that she fits with who all went to state school. But in geography, she discovers that uh, quite a lot of them went to private school. And uh, when she goes on a geography field trip right at the beginning, she then finds out that they're put in rooms. And uh, she's put in, in a room where nobody, would, those people wouldn't speak to her outside the room. Um, I'll talk to you when there's no other people around, but I won't talk to you when they are. And then they're talking in the room about uh, what A-levels we've done, and there was an, one other girl from a state school, and, uh, for, sorry, was, there was me and one other girl from a state school, everyone else from a private school, and she says, really, you went to a state school? Um, yes, I was like, there's nothing wrong with my state school, thank you very much, it's fine, it's got me A's, it's got me the grades that I needed to get here, just as your private school did. And she says, it was very much a hostile, you're not privately school, schooled, so I don't want to speak to you sort of thing, which is stupid, I know, but... Um, and as we followed through those narratives, we learned just what the affect and the effects of, of those sorts of unnoticed, certainly for the staff, um, experiences were in terms of fighting your way to be heard and to be accepted and to be legitimate as, as a student uh, in the university. Not least because you couldn't either afford or you didn't have time to do extracurricular activities, so she focused on studying. That was a very strong theme amongst our working class students. You focus on studying, you don't focus on all the extraneous bits. Um, but she would like to do something like volunteer for the Riding for the Disabled, but can't afford the transport. And that issue about economic resources again came across time and time again in our narratives. And she explains that she's on a lower budget um, and that she has to budget for £50 a week and she's managing 
but she says um, she knows sometimes she has to say I know I can't do that I need to eat this week uh, so I can't actually do something and she says we asked her are you managing she says just about and I've got a bit of savings if necessary and I was taught from when I was little she uses uh, what Wolfgang Lehmann has called um, her, her moral a moral capital as a working class student that says you save money and you um, demonstrate that you can do things that are right and good uh, unlike her flatmates who just go off spending like it grows on trees <laughs> and she's saying no it doesn't um, and it has material effects so a compulsory field trip that the, that the students were involved in or a requirement to go on a field trip had a group of students going off to Greenland with a group of tutors to spend their time and she couldn't afford that so a group of them had decided they'd go to the Alps and see where we get to um, which I thought sounded very interesting I spent a lot of time in the Alps and I uh, mountaineering not doing geography field trips and I thought where will you get to if you just wander into the Alps <laughs> that notion that you can have a whole team of people taking a group out to Greenland and you leave the others to fend for themselves um, and the material effects and the actual um, academic effects it will have on your next stage of study uh, again are things that won't come out uh, in in when you haven't got these sorts of narrative constructions um, her career goal though she was still committed wanted to do a PhD she'd like a PhD and she'd like to stay at university forever and just research and lecture and and I've put that there as well because that commitment and that belief uh, that a university education will take you somewhere is really really strong we had exactly the same with our South African students. One of our South African students said, I want to become doctor and then I want to become professor one day. That's my big goal, that commitment and belief that it will take you somewhere. And then that person in South Africa is going to write a maths textbook. This notion that education is really going to make something of your life and change people's lives is cut across, but in very different ways in our two projects. And I think that being able to, through narrative research, both express the vividness of how people experience those things but also the details of what really makes those things possible or unbelievably difficult is something that needs the sorts of in-depth insights and understandings of individuals lives but as individual lives are also part of wider social conditions is a really important role for narrative research so what work are these narratives doing Certainly in both these studies, uh, the Murato study, we're not, uh, uh, obviously not, we're only at the beginnings of, but certainly in the, in the Paired Peers project, um, these narratives are speaking back to the promises and the illusions of widening participation. It's not just a panacea, it's more complicated than that, and we, there are lots of things that we need to think about and do. Now, I don't need to say that to this audience necessarily, but I was on a, 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 was on a, a House of Lords widening um, a, a social mobility commission and one of the participants, unexpectedly, um, one of the Labour um, peers, said, well, once people have got into university, there's no problem, is there? Um, there is still a notion for people outside of the sorts of communities that we might spend lots of time in that you've sort solved all the problems. So we do need to keep speaking back to those promises. Um, and we do need to 
to challenge the notion that actually having a term social mobility and widening participation solves all the problems, that actually what we're probably documenting is increasingly less fairness, uh, as Ken Roberts said in 2011. And sadly, I constantly go back to this Bates and Riseborough book about vocational education from the 1990s, um, because it sounds very much like what we're still doing. Um, we talk about equality and freedom, but actually we keep documenting more and more inequalities. So, what's going on in our Murato project? What work are we trying to do? Um, we're using capability theories, and I will come to that in just a second. Uh, so, what we're trying to work on is not just documenting those narratives and looking at them in terms of life histories and looking at them, locating them in the conditions in which they're set, but we're keen to identify the capabilities that the participants and that we can work with also to other people as well as those participants, identify the capabilities that are needed for well-being and agency. In other words, understanding the processes that enable and hinder those young people to um, acquire useful knowledge um, and, and work through with them what are the sorts of capabilities that will enable them to um, shift and move both their lives and communities, which doesn't involve just individuals doing things, it involves structural changes as well. Um, but we're working through that in terms of thinking in, in, in ca through capability theory. And that means, um, yeah, turning to all the capability theorists um, in terms of working with ideas of, of, of capabilities. So we're looking at the opportunities or capabilities from which individuals can decide and realize states of being and practices, functionings in comparison with others. Um, so we're looking at the sorts of functionings and beings and doings that are made possible or not possible by the conditions in which uh, our participants are, are living and trying to participate in higher education. And um, for individuals, what we're looking at is what sort of obstacles could we remove then, could be removed in order for people to live the sort of life they would choose to, choose to live. Um, and certainly coming into it fresh, with fresh eyes from outside, there are some really obvious and basic things that could shift and change. Um, obvious things like the requirement to register at university in addition to pay fees seems like double the amount of bureaucracy that prevents people rather than helps them. Um, making textbooks accessible. Uh, it's interesting that we've fought so hard to say that if you expect students to do something, read something, you must make it available in England. And the idea that you, in South Africa, you don't have to do that at all. You can say do this and if they can't, that's tough. Um, it's really interesting just the differences that you can see in those contrasts. Not that South Africa's wrong and we're right, it's just interesting that there's very different ways in which those things are being thought about at this present time. Um, and importantly for us in the project, but I think importantly for narrative research, is looking at how those personal biographies that you've been hearing about uh, this morning, as well as the couple of examples I've given here, are interacting with other wider structural factors. And in capability theories, they're understood as a set of conversion factors that may enable or constrain capabilities. In other words, they're factors that can be used to convert things that people want into things that re people really can achieve. And one of the things that we're trying to do is shift the notion of learning outcomes. Our project is part of a learning outcomes project. So we could have very easily looked at who gets what in a module and who gets A grades and who gets B grades and part of it will be that and who succeeds and in what scale, time scale. But we're trying to 
rethink and challenge what we mean by learning outcomes and how they should be understood as something broader and more important than that. What are the capabilities that students value as well as stakeholders in terms of their development? And importantly in our project here is um, the role that graduates should play in building a democratic and decent society. And one of the reasons I emphasise that is in a very recent article I read about English higher education was a suggestion that the most that employers want really is social skills and soft skills. So you could actually change all undergraduate degrees to being degrees where you train people in social and soft skills. Um, one of the things that we push very hard in our project is what sorts of epistemic knowledges enable people to engage with democratic uh, decision making and that's not soft skills and social skills in our view so some of those things are very important in trying to reframe how we think about the problems as well. In the paired peers project um, whilst there are lots of similarities one of the key things we've tried to do in the paired peers project is to reclaim the C word and the C word here being social class. Um, social class comes and goes and there is some talk about social class uh, but interestingly um, the, and the, equality, the Equality Challenge Unit, for example, in higher education didn't have social class as one of the issues that it looked at, partly because it's not a protected characteristic in England, unlike other characteristics. Um, so one of our key concerns was to say social class still matters. There are intersections of social class with a whole range of other things, but class does matter. Um, and in understanding how class is lived, um, then, we, then it's really important, and that can help to inform policy and practice. And in that project, um, and as you're hearing, I un unashamedly own up to theorising um, and have found theory very important. And you, we use theory both before and after. So both in this project and in the Murato project, capability theory was there from the outset in the Murato project, Bourdieu was there from the outset in the Paired Peers project. We haven't tried to force, and I think it's a really important point to make, we haven't tried to force our data into it, but very sadly, I've tried to escape from Bourdieu for about 20 years and failed. <laughs> Mainly because his tools actually, and particularly people's development of his tools, do speak to the sorts of things I find in the narrative data that I'm looking at. They help to understand and they help to really focus in on the on key problems that are, that are in data and turn them into... Um, turn the private issues into public or the personal troubles into public issues. Um, so we've found very much uh, in theorising the Paired Peers Project that concerted cultivation, which is Leroux's development of, of uh, Bourdieu's work, was very much in evidence. And not only was concerted cultivation in family going on amongst our middle class families, but goodness, were quite a lot of our middle-class participants involved in hyper-mobilising those capitals at university um, in concerted cultivation of what they did to make sure that they were really uh, ready for the best possible job when they left university. Um, joining the societies, making sure they were the chair of the society, getting work placement, being the student rep. Um, I won't go into details, but we had lots and lots of evidence of that in our narratives of how people constructed that and were willing to talk to us about constructing it as well and they talked about it as a very concerted attempt to position themselves. Um, and we were also influenced in the way in what we saw and found links between that notion of personal capital. So you don't just develop those capitals, but you learn to package them. We found very much that our students in the Paired Peers Project, that there was a much greater capacity for packaging what you'd got in a very effective way um, amongst our more middle class participants. 
than amongst our working class participants who had done things and felt that they'd done things that the employers should want, but they couldn't package them in the ways that had the right words uh, to, to, to speak uh, to the audiences that they were looking for. And, as I suggested previously, we found evidence of this development of a particular sort of moral capital amongst our working class students. They othered the middle class students and they said, we've got things, uh, we've got a strong work ethic, we're mature, we're responsible, we know how to handle money. Uh, and they sought to position themselves by identifying what was important and good. So they certainly didn't deny their background and their experiences, but they were constantly in the shadow um, of a set of other apparently more valuable capitals. So we've used those sorts of theorisations to try and draw out not just an understanding from those narratives but to take that uh, forward to, to a, a bigger understanding. So finally then to sum up what work can uh, narrative research do and I draw on the same sorts of um, ideas and, and, and research as uh, the others have been doing. Um, firstly I think narratives definitely look at con complexities and contradictions. They don't want to skate over the surface. We have no choice because uh, the people who we work with and talk to and engage with, their narratives don't let us get away from that. Uh, but of course they reveal ambiguity and that's a, that's a real problem because ideally we'd like to get rid of that because it's really hard to deal with and uh, it's really important that we that we engage with ambiguity and I think that's one of the things that makes it unhappy reading for policymakers quite often, never mind ourselves, because we'd love it all to be a happy ending but it isn't. Um, and they help us to make sense and I like this notion of what, um, what Denzin calls little science, uh, that it's little science, it's concerned with the small and the local and says that is important as well. Um, and it's in, in concerned with the fragmented and the accidental and the, and, and the emergent, it's not just with a big picture. Um, but I, I also remind myself, and I think it's important to remember, it involves more than just personal stories of success and despair, and it is really easy to sink into stories. I always used to like Pat Sykes, who was a colleague of mine at Sheffield, who said, life history and stories, she made the difference between like history and stories and said history puts those stories in their social, political and economic context and moves them from being um, personal stories of success and despair to understanding them in a wider context for what they can offer us of an understanding. Uh, and I think that's really helpful in that quote. And um, I still go back to C. Wright Mills, who actually in his uh, sociological imagination says, try and avoid doing field work at all costs. So I'm sure he wouldn't have us running out to do narrative research. But he still has really important things to say about how personal troubles can't be solved just as pu personal troubles, uh, but they need to be understood in terms of public issues. And I think that's that context for trying to work with narrative research, particularly in terms of practice and policy, is, is really important. And I find that it's been a touchstone quote for me, and I'm sure you've read it in other places before, um, that it's a really helpful way of trying to think through that relationship between the personal and the public or the personal and the political in in that uh, second wave feminist term. Uh, and finally, um, this is the other thing that I think we own up to, those of us that are involved in this sort of research, um, that we actually invest ourselves. Um, I, try, I do not have a particular agenda in my research, but I do know that I'm committed to wanting uh, opportunities to be more open to more people and my real focus is on 
the ordinary lives of people who get overlooked and who don't get chances. So in that respect, there's a big investment of me um, in terms of what I choose to look at and how I choose to then try and represent and work with that. And Lincoln and Denzin emphasise how we need to own up to that. So finally, these are very specific things in terms of what we are trying to do, and this comes from, in, the, in these two projects, what we've been trying to do in terms of informing policy. So we have actually also, uh, as part of these two projects, and they are big funded projects, looked very specifically at what we can do in terms of um, how this narrative work, because it's based on narrative work mainly, some, some statistical work in, in, in the Murato project, what we can do to inform big policy as well as little policy. Um, and we're very specific in what we've said here, and we are working on developing um, a set of, of multidimensional learning outcomes, as you can see, based on a capabilities approach. So we are shifting, not just from what I've been talking about, uh, which will also remain important, but also to think through uh, what will we do with that specifically that might, um, that might speak in particular ways if we want to speak to particular audiences. And similarly, we have done that with the Paired Peers projects. Um, we've looked at a whole range of things uh, and questions that we've tried to address, which we know are questions that are being asked regularly by policy now, and therefore used our work, which has been, as, a, as you've heard, very narratively based, um, to try and respond to, but also uh, to challenge uh, some of the policy issues. So we've tried to respond to some of the questions that are raised by policy, but also raise this issue of um, a tension between individual mobility, which is a very big focus of the social mobility uh, <clears throat> program at the present time, and the promotion of social mobility amongst communities, which we heard again and again is hugely problematic uh, amongst our participants. So as you can see, we've got, um, we've got narratives and we've done lots of work with those and we will do more work with them in both projects, but we've also uh, looked at ways in which we speak back uh, to, to policy. That's it. Much more detail on these websites. I hope that was helpful. Thank you very much.